Welcome to Grub Stakers. I'm Andrew Palmer, age 30, and this is my book report on I Love Capitalism by Ken Lingone, co-founder of The Home Depot, coming up right now on Grub Stakers. I think we disproportionately stop whites too much. I taught those kids lessons on product development and marketing, and they taught me what it was like growing up feeling targeted for your race. I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. You know, I went to a tough school in Queens that they used to beat up the little Jewish boys. You know, I love having the support of real billionaires. Hey everybody, welcome back to Grub Stakers. We got another exciting episode for you, uh, but before we get to it, I am Sean P. McCarthy, joined as always by... Steve Jeffries. Andy Palma. Yogi Polywell. And uh, this week, we got another special episode because one of us read a book. Uh, it started as a joke because we know Andy, as an ardent Jill Stein voting socialist, uh, does not love capitalism. So we want it to put him. I beg to differ. We put a, We want it to put him directly in the mind of a man who loves capitalism, and of course, we're talking about one of the co-founders of Home Depot, Ken Ligone, who wrote a book called "I Love Capitalism" that Andy spent all of yesterday reading. Guys, I, I opened up Ken Ligone's "I Love Capitalism." It's mm-hmm. a tale of love, betrayal, and Ross Perot. <laughs> it. It starts as the the nice story of a boy who grew up in Roslyn Heights. Um, Oh, actually, it starts with uh, two quotes from Ken Langone. The world belongs to risk takers. And a kid once said to me, money doesn't buy everything. I said, well, kid, (laughs) I was poor. And I can tell you right now, poverty doesn't do a very good job either. Um, That's why I'm hoarding (laughs) $3.4 billion now. Uh yeah, apparently poverty can't buy everything either. So uh, Ken opens up the book with, uh, this book is my love song to capitalism. Capitalism works. Let me say it again. It works, and I'm living proof. I can work for anybody and everybody. Blacks and whites and browns and everyone in between. I so. like how Ken Lagone is proposing a paper bag test for capitalism. <laughs> Absolutely anybody is entitled to dream big, and absolutely everybody should dream big. I did. Show me where the silver spoon was in my mouth. I've got to argue profoundly and passionately, I'm the American dream. Just a note from Andy, uh, his reading of the book, is apparently Ken Lagone's grandfather was a landlord yes, so, during the so, Great Depression. So Ken Langone. <laughs> really? Uh, so when did they Ken change Lang- their name to Langone, which is what everyone... <laughs> Who works in Langone facilities calls him. Not important. Uh, <laughs> Ken Langone was the uh, rough-and-tumble son of Italian immigrants' children. Mm-hmm. He, his grandparents, they were fresh off the boat, so he was pretty much fresh off the boat when he uh, started living, being born in Roslyn Heights in Long Island. Uh, one of his grandfathers realized the quickest way to the American dream, property. So he bought up a bunch of property, and then in 1932 was hit by a car, and no one knows who did it. Because uh, a hit and run, right? And just kind of context: in 1932, uh, you might be aware, was the Great Depression in the United States of America, and uh, landlords, people who owned property, had a tendency to evict poverty-stricken people. So uh, it is very possible that the silver spoon in Ken Lagone's mouth was found next to his dead grandfather <laughs> after one of his evicted <laughs> tenants ran him over. Now he says here that his uh, 
uh, they didn't see anything of those of those riches because uh, there were tax bills oh, on the property. FDR owned him. Yeah, yeah. So he grew up the the son of a hardworking plumber. Of course. Um, but of and, course, and his mom was a high school cafeteria lady. Yes, mm-hmm. and she made uh, she made uh, linguine so good that everyone loved her. Uh, and then his other grandfather uh, apparently really loved working with a shovel until his thumb got deformed from using the shovel. But he loved it so much that he died of a stroke while still working, and that's inspirational. Wow. His father did? His grandfather. Oh, I see. His how, father, does he, how does he deform a thumb from shoveling? What is that? I don't know. It, it, it got fucked up. There's even a picture where he's like, this is my grandfather. Look at how fucked up his thumb is. Um, <laughs> in the picture section. All right, of the okay. Book. Okay, good. <laughs> oh, so that's why so many Home Depot employees get injured on the job. <laughs> <laughs> it's inspiring. and uh, But... You know, his dad he was a hardworking plumber, but he was in a union, and he was going around. He was getting all these jobs, and he got a sit-down with one of the union guys who's like, listen, there's all these guys sitting here waiting for jobs to come in. You're going out and getting them. We don't care for that because at the unions, they like to be lazy and play cards in their card room. Oh. They don't like to go out and get jobs like an American. Also, also a rule that Home Depot stands by, there's people outside waiting for jobs, and they mm-hmm. don't have a union. Uh, those people don't exist. It's uh, They're not mentioned in this book by the Home Depot guy. So, so he, d- he does not thank the illegal immigrants who work outside of Home Depot once for his $3.4 billion they don't, fortune. They don't exist. So he... Uh, uh, Mr. Langone, he's always on the hustle. Uh, mm-hmm. All through his childhood, he's making a buck. He's uh, running back and forth. He's uh, he's uh, going to a liquor store, taking their boxes, and then selling them for scrap to another guy. Uh, then he goes to college at Bucknell, and he almost gets kicked out but, because he... By the way, if you are offended, as we all are, by Andy's stereotypical accent, please tweet at him. This We do not support discrimination against Italian-Americans. This is how I talk. <laughs> I just like that Andy's doing a good job of making his voice appropriately sound to Ken Langone's age. So later on in the episode, it'll be a much more gruffer and deeper Italian accent. Whereas right now, it's a fun, high-pitched, shrill Italian accent. (laughs) Yeah, you guys just keep listening for an hour. Andy will be full Michael Corleone. (laughs) It's going to be a brief period of Mario. Vito, you motherfucker. He's going to go from Tony Soprano to Michael Corleone. Vito Corleone. (laughs) All right. I give it off, but it doesn't refuse. Okay, so he's in college at Bucknell. He's fucking around. He almost gets kicked out for trying to yank a toilet out of the ground at a restaurant. Well, his dad was a plumber. I mean, that's really, you know, he's, yeah, that's yeah. where he got his roots from. He was trying to he was trying to get the toilet seat to uh, add to his friend's costume where he's going to dress his shit. It's some college bullshit. He, he, he almost... had just eaten linguine the night before, <laughs> <laughs> and the toilet had to come out. Well, he, <laughs> he had to put it directly into the sewer system. Back to his liquor store days, he just wanted to flip a toilet. Uh, he was like, you know, I could take a yeah, toilet yeah. from here and then sell it to the guys over there, and really the roots of his Home Depot empire start with these toilet shenanigans. It's, it's all about the hustle. So uh, then he meets his wife and Claire. He, he uh, she's sixteen. He's eighteen. He falls uh-huh. in love. He says, um, "This is still in his uh, early his the first chapter." He says she had a lot of friends. She was very popular, but the main thing I liked about her was that she was a free spirit. She didn't judge All right, me. Okay. Okay, good. And I didn't judge her. We enjoyed each other, and we still do. And then there's a break, 
And then supply and demand goes through everything in life. <laughs> Early on, I caught him to the fact. And then he goes back into one of his college hustles. One of them was uh, giving out cigarettes for free to get people addicted to cigarettes. <laughs> uh, I love capitalism. I mean, he kind of lays it on the guy who had the job before him. But you get the feeling that. Um, well, I have cigarettes, which is the supply. And I need people to be addicted to them, which is the demand. So yeah, yeah. I don't see what the problem is. Yeah. Hmm. So, uh, so then he leaves. Uh, he he leaves college. What, what if what if he didn't let his wife talk to any of his friends because he thought it was equivalent to unionization? <laughs> <laughs> no association between more than two people at a time. It's insulting to America. No groups of th- yes. so uh, so he does some shitty jobs after college. One of them is like basically being in a precursor to a credit rating agency. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't like judging people, so he just fakes everything and eventually gets fired. Oh. Uh, he then so wait he he committed credit fraud yes because he, <laughs> he's a good guy securities fraud was, because he didn't want to upset people he would sit at home watch the prices right and uh, fake uh, analyses of people uh, and then he got fired and then um, through sheer hard work and a connection through his father-in-law <laughs> he gets a job at a uh, what is it it's not a Wall Street agency now wait a minute though uh, isn't he given all these quotes about like. Work your ass off, and yep. you can succeed in capitalism. But his own admission is that he just faked his job and then watched the prices right, and then through connections, he succeeded in capitalism. Friends and family, he, LLC. All, right. all on his own. Cared, all on his own. He cared about those people, and he didn't want to give them bad reviews. And he got caught when he said that this guy was the head of a uh, soccer thing and cleans his gutters out, and it turned out he was uh, he was, was in a wheelchair, and that's how he got fired from that job. Oh. Um, so then well, he gets. It's interesting. I mean, we'll kind of get to Elliot Spitzer later, but he seems to think that Elliot Spitzer went after a Wall Street scandal where the analysts were essentially boosting in-house stocks that various banks were trying to do IPOs for, and he said that Spitzer was going after Wall Street to try and uh, make a name for himself. So it's just interesting that he was an analyst, but he clearly doesn't understand the analyst job is at least theoretically supposed to be independent from the core business that it works for. Right. Maybe those analysts uh, didn't want to uh, hurt the stock's reputation and wanted to do good by them. <laughs> so they just did a little bit of uh, flubbing, and it was for the best forever. They're, they're white lies. Uh, Why they got to be white? They were uh, in between lies. Uh, Thank you. So, uh, Oh, and, and just so he married Rich, too. That's the other thing, right? Yeah. He married a, a fellow with uh, Wall Street Connection. Or oh, he married a lady... Whose father? Whose had father Wall had Wall Street connections. Yes. Not that he has anything, uh, any problem with people being gay. He mentions he had a gay friend in the fifties, no less. Oh, so he gets into one or another different investment firms. First, like a bank, and then he uh, leapfrogs into a different investment thing. And he talks about his poverty at the time. He says he would have liked to have eaten lunch with the guys. But him and his wife were broke. They had to pay their $128 per month rent. They had to feed themselves. They had car insurance. And their budget didn't allow for him to spend three bucks for lunch. And also, when he's talking about being broke, he's talking about having like an apartment in Queens with his wife. It's like, we we know people 
who are married and still have to have roommates. Yes. And he's like giving us this sob story about how he was struggling. And this well, is just like his early twenties. Like it's, it's hilarious. Like uh, the, all of the baby boomer, like I worked my ass off bullshit. I mean, we've talked about this briefly, but essentially this was an entirely different United States economy right. where unionization was near peaks. Average wages, real wages in the United States peaked in 1973. They are below that current level. While costs of living, such as healthcare, education, et cetera, are inflate are, have increased vastly over inflation in that time period. So it's a completely different economy that the capitalism that he loves. He was always working hard. He was always on the hustle. Uh, he had trouble getting into Wall Street because there were the WASP firms and there were the Jewish firms. Hell yes. And he I knew was, he was going to go there. He was, he was a, a plumber's son from Long Island, a rough-and-ready Italian-American kid. And what business did he have rubbing elbows with the high and mighty, let alone make deals with them? Uh, so eventually he, he, he managed to get into, there was a downturn in 1960 and he figured the only thing that can happen is it goes up. So he walks into a place, asks for a job, says, you know what? They're like, we can't afford you. He says, you know what? What's that secretary making? Pay me what she's making. And that's how he gets his foot in the door at a place called, I don't know, R. Listen, I know you can't afford Pinky. me. But what do you pay the women around? Yeah, I'll take that wage. <laughs> take a broad wage <laughs> for now. I'll take a lady wage. Uh, and work my way up to a man's wage, uh, an Irishman wage. <laughs> you know, the, the an Italian man's wage. Listen, no I'm, I'm. You know what? I'm having a lot of trouble believing that there have been sexual harassment complaints at Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I don't deserve wasp money, but come on, a toots money. Why not? So he. Uh, so he starts at. R.W. Pressbridge, and that's where he kind of becomes a Wall Street whiz. His uh, first, he starts uh, doing doing little trades here and there, but eventually, by happenstance, uh, he's at some special engagement, and he meets a guy who says, um, "Hey, listen, I got this company. They want to go public. How about you? Uh, what do you?" Th-? And he's like, "Oh, that sounds great. I want to get in on this. Um, give me a call." And the guy gives him a call, and uh, Ends up connecting him with a little fella by the name of Ross Perot. Oh. Now, uh, this Ross Perot, he doesn't like swearing, mm-hmm. and he's very punctual. He He's very committed to time, but he goes into Ross Perot. Ross talks his ear off for half an hour, and he says, listen, I got to go. You said only half an hour, and Ross is like, you know what? We can still talk. And so then he says, well, okay, the first rule was broken. I'm going to break the second rule. And he's like, listen, those Merrill Lynch guys... There, that's a load of bullshit. I can get you to go public, uh, bada bing. And so... <laughs> direct quote from the book, by the way. Direct quote. So uh, he he uh, he takes Ross Perot public, including... Uh, he has a... <laughs> and so he... he uh, it, they um, He has this story of when they're just about to go public. And what they their process for that, for signing documents, is because there are taxes in New York, they take a limousine under the uh, Holland Tunnel, mm-hmm. and then they sign the papers uh, when they first pull off into New Jersey. Oh, wow. And then wow. they have the limousine driver be the witness. Okay. So they're driving through the Holland Tunnel, and Ross Pro is like, hey, you know, I, I want to go 100 times my company's uh, net worth with these stocks. It's something about, like, the company's going to be worth more in the future, so they go 100 times its net worth with the IPO. <laughs> and is that normal? Is that a thing? I guess. I don't know. It was, it was, I, think it's a, I think it's a normal thing. And as they're going through the tunnel, uh, 
Ken goes, er, Ross Perot goes, you know what? Uh, I was worried that, you know, all these other guys, they say you can't do a hundred, but I'm glad you're doing it. And then Ken goes, well, you know, I can't do a hundred. And Ross starts yelling at him. He's like, Hey, you, you, I knew you're just like all the other New York guys. You jerk me around. And then Ken says, listen, if you want to do a hundred, we could do a hundred. And Ross is like, what did you want to do? And he said 115. And then they had a big laugh uh, and were friends uh, for life. And then they went to the Bing and saw the stripper before she was murdered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then Ross Perot beat uh, a stripper to death outside the Bing. And I so, like the idea of them like bonding over uh, Lagoon being like, uh, hey, you know those uh, people you hate? Well, I'm going to concentrate them outside of my stores in <laughs> 20 years. So, uh, let's see. You don't know this now, but you're going to have parking lot attendants for free. <laughs> <laughs> it's not valet parking per se, but if you give a person your keys, your car will be parked somewhere else. Those people right. don't exist. Yes, and well, so, but but so taking, uh, I mean, uh, so that's his first big splash in uh, Wall Street because it right. actually turns out to be a big success for him. And that's what makes him a millionaire, right? Is taking Ross Perot's company public? I believe so, and it makes Ross Perot a millionaire. Um, and uh, then he has a brush with the SEC, and there's this great quote. Uh, where he's talking about how the SEC started looking into a deal that he was working for with Ross Perot into buying this other company mm -hmm. using their stocks. And they used this trick where they would keep the stock prices, um, they would keep the stock prices stabilized. And uh, they were, you're supposed to use it for a second IPO or for a second public offering, but they were trying to use it to use the stocks to buy out this other company. So the SEC gets involved. And so Ken says this about the SEC I knew about these people. When they think there's something bad going on, they do an investigation. And if violations have occurred, they recommend corrective action and possibly punishment. <gasps> so basically, he's talking about like how the SEC operates by just describing their literal job. <laughs> right, 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 right. As though it's like he's got inside knowledge on like what the uh, SEC you know, regulations. is trying to do. Yeah. Well, in fairness to him, uh, law enforcement in this country has historically discriminated against Italian-Americans <laughs> and Italian-Americans involved in uh, financial transactions. It's, a, it's an ugly stereotype. So Listen, I know how these garbage men work, okay? <laughs> People make trash. They put it on the side of the streets. Garbage men show up Thursdays or Saturdays, depending on your neighborhood. Pick up the trash. Take it to the dump. It's all the inside information you need to know. It's basically his description of the U.S. economy. <laughs> Maybe we can play that drop in a bit. Me? So uh, uh, during his time at Pressbridge, he ends up, uh, people decide that they want to short Ross Perot's stocks. And so he decides, you know what? I'm going to beat that. I'm going to buy all the stocks they're short selling. And it turns oh. out he uh, tanks Pressbridge, uh, right, almost runs them into bankruptcy. <laughs> so he lays off a huge chunk of their workforce. So he has to fire a bunch of employees because his dipshit, like uh, Ross Perot ass kissing, uh, right. gets him to try and squeeze short sellers. And he ends up losing millions of dollars. Yeah, he ends up losing. Because he's a fucking idiot. But of course, he loves capitalism. And he almost bankrupt. Well, listen, you know, he, he sacrificed. They had to tighten their belts. Ugh. And... Uh, and then, like, shortly after that, he leaves the company. Because, mm -hmm. you know what? They, they, they work in bonds, and that's not fast-paced enough for Ken. Mm -hmm. And it has nothing to do with the fact that he ran the company into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> They're making empanadas. I'm making calzones. Completely different. It's great, though. I mean, it's like uh, another uh, recurring theme on this podcast is, like, 
you know, they always talk about like the margin of error or margin to fail or something. But like if you're a Home Depot associate and you get laid off, like you're fucked. But if you're Ken Lagone and you run your company into the ground, well, don't worry. You'll be able to bounce back because you have Wall Street connections and a rich father-in-law right, right. and grandfather landlord during the Great Depression money. Yeah, there's no amount of mistakes. They lost all that money in the... In fucking the, FDR. Yeah, but they he had the money. money. Should, listen, should be he, rewarded for the risk you take in business. He was when he was a kid. He was he was driving by the nice houses in town. Mm-hmm. He was in the car with his mother, and his mother turned to him and said, "You see that? You got to work for that." But here's the thing: wealth, never become a rat. <laughs> <laughs> wealth it skips generations. Uh-huh. Your grandfather was rich. You're going to be rich, but you got to work hard. Um, and then. It seems like dipshits who lose all their money are a running theme in this family. <laughs> hey, Ken didn't lose all his money, so he goes, he starts... Uh, uh, um, as long a, as you gain more than you lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get, you, as long as you come out on top at the end. And he started a, uh, what was it, uh, um, an investment company. Oh, and, and just to put a date on it, he took Ross Perot's company public in 1968, according to New York Magazine. Oh, wow, yes. really? And he started on Wall Street, I think, in 62. Sorry, yes. when, when did he say that he had a rent of $129? Uh, that was right, that was like 1960, 1958, Early something 20s. like that. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. That's like 2900 3000 Oh, was it? In current dollars. He was really struggling, man. So uh, why, why would you? All right, he's kind of some profitably, profitably yeah, the, spending going on there. He he <laughs> throws out these dollar amounts, and it's all like you have no reference point for any of it. Uh, it's uh, like what fucking 80-year-olds do when they talk. Like, oh, right, right. I went to the Nickelodeon, and I spent a nickel, and yeah. now you kids Watch wanna... the YouTubes for free. <laughs> Back in my day, I had to walk 10 miles in the snow to get to school. Well, Grandpa, I get shot at, so who gives a fuck? Well, things were a lot cheaper before Jimmy Carter destroyed the economy. That's very true. And we get to that later. Oh, okay. Uh, so he starts an investment company uh, that does medical stuff because he's very interested in medical. Uh, and so... Cloning, mostly cloning. He, uh, uh, Yeah, cloning, electric thermometers, that's his big thing, is that they're the wave of the future. and But eventually he gets this electric thermometer company and everyone's fucking everyone. Uh, in the company, like apparently the, the there's actually a fun little anecdote in here where it's like the guy who is the CEO of the company, a guy walks in and catches him fucking the guy's wife, and the guy's like, you know what, don't do it again, buddy. And so the CEO <laughs> leaves, and then the guy, he's like a car salesman, he comes home again and catches the guy fucking his wife, and he's like, hey, I told you not to do it again. And the uh, CEO's like, hey, listen, how about this? I offer you a job at my company, and that's you know that's great. So. Eventually, Ken fires. Well, he offered the dude fucking his wife a job. No, he Other the guy fucking around. his wife offered the dude whose <laughs> wife he was fucking a job. So, so not a bad job there. Yeah. So the CEO guy, he turns out to be a huge fuck up, and Ken fires him. But then he finds out the story when he's like going through the personnel. Like, how did this guy who was a um, who was a car dealer like get this job because right. he sucks? And the C and so he calls it the CEO he fired, and the guy was like. You know, it was the only way I could find out where he was all the time. <laughs> Which, for all of for all of Ken's uh, bullshit, that was a good story. Hmm. So, it's like uh, you did really, you know, it's it's fortunate he did that in the days before workplace shootings were commonplace, <laughs> right? Right. Because that's a bit of a cucking move. Yeah, it was might, ultra cucking. Might psychologically damage your employee. 
So, uh, so Ken gets uh, involved. He finds out about this uh, company that turns out to be making a lot of money. But it's in the garment it. district of New York. <laughs> in the, they're making triangle shirtwaist. And <laughs> so it's this company out in California. The Gambino family. What? And they're making a bunch of money, uh, but they're owned by another company that's just bleeding money. Mm. But the company that's making money, it's run by this guy, uh, Bernie Marcus. Right. And uh, he, he, his, the company that he has is called Handy Dan's. Mm -hmm. And they're a home supply store. Mm -hmm. And so he starts investing in Handy Dan's, but he only gets 20% and ends up in this kind of feud with the guy who owns the parent company of Handy Dan's, uh, eventually forcing the guy who owns the parent company to buy him out of this company so they can go private and have total control. Mm -hmm. uh, and eventually they fire the guy, Bernie Marcus, and threaten to put him in jail because apparently Bernie had a labor law violation. <laughs> Uh, because in San Jose, he explained, there uh, was and still is, it's still a big union town, a very liberal city with a big General Motors assembly plant and a heavy UAW representation. And so there was an effort afoot to unionize two San Jose Handy Dan stores. One of the stores was going to have a union representation election, and a group of employees went to Bernie and Arthur Blank and said they wanted to decertify out of the union. And Bernie and Arthur transferred to San Jose a number of employees from Phoenix who they knew would vote against the union. Mm. And so it was, they basically stuffed the ballot box to union bust. Wow. Um, well, it's, it's nice that Ken Lagone would go on to be such an ardent supporter of unions <laughs> through the rest of his career. So he just casually mentions his buddy, Bernie, who he treats as a saint throughout this book, like very early on. He's like, oh yeah, and he also did some union busting. Um, yeah, and, and so um, just to put a date on it, I believe it's 1978 where he starts investing in what would become Home Depot. Um, uh, yeah, well, Handy Dan's, uh, yeah, so Handy Dan's, uh, Bernie gets fired from it. He uh, is not uh, prosecuted for this union busting. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, they decide to Unlike start. Unlike today, where union busting is, of course, punished <laughs> it is by the full extent of the law. Ruthlessly. So it's May 1978, and they want to start this company. But uh, Ken says the problem in May 1978 was that the business climate was lousy. Jimmy Carter was president, <laughs> and national <laughs> confidence was sagging. Oh, man. Well, this I've got good news for this guy. In two years, all of his problems will be gone. Oh, man. You you have no idea. So, uh, Oh, and, and so, yeah, you mentioned Bernard Marcus and Arthur Blank. They were the two other. Yes. They are both billionaires as well, and the those two, along with Ken Lagone, are the three co-founders of Home Depot. All three are billionaires, so we will be returning to Bernard Marcus and Arthur Blank at a future episode. And for the listeners, it's Arthur Blank is his name. We're not hiding his last name. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur Blank uh, was not happy about how he was uh, let go from the Home Depot. They, they started calling him that after he was unable to conceive a child. <laughs> <laughs> so first they go, they want their money for Home Depot. Who do they go to first? But Ross Perot. So RP. They, they have their meeting with Ross Perot. They're talking about what cars they're going to drive. And Bernie mentions that he drives a Cadillac with 100,000 miles. And, uh, and Ross Perot goes off on him and says, Cadillac? What? Over here, people who work for me, they drive Chevrolets. And Bernard Marcus was like, is, th is there somebody talking to me? I, just, I don't see anyone <laughs> at my current height level <laughs> making, making noise right now. <laughs> And so uh, they realize that Ross Perot is probably uh, too fucking nuts. So they get other investors. Uh -huh. 
And um, but, so wait, no, weren't you saying, Andy, that uh, throughout this entire book, he's constantly kissing Ross Perot's ass? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, yes, this is the one time that uh, Ross he, Perot was wrong. Ross Perot was wrong. I, uh-huh. I just like the idea uh, of the giant sucking sound is Ken Lagone talking about Ross Perot. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely present throughout the IPO. Um, so they're about to set up this company. They're trying mm-hmm. to get investors, but it, uh, it quote, it was a dicey moment. The economy was in recession. Uh, the market was in the crapper. Ronald Reagan had just become president, but Reaganomics hadn't yet worked its magic. And that magic, of course, being reducing the highest income tax rate from 70% when he took office to 28% when it's he left office. It's magic. So uh, that's we go through. Eventually, they, they start the Home Depot, and it's a roaring success. So mm-hmm. that's about the first half of the book, which is a real... Um, Humdinger. It's a real Norman Rockwell painting of um, his background. And then in chapter seven, there's a chapter called Guy Walks Into My Office. And we go from Norman Rockwell to Harmonious Bosch. It's, it starts out with this guy who walks in and says, hey, I invented the laser, um, but I can't get my patents to work and get my money from it. So then he Ken... took a meeting with Dr. Evil. <laughs> So so then he starts just he's like he gets this great idea and he like plays it up like ah ah uh, and he just opens up a patent troll firm <laughs> <laughs> that uh, just like they don't I love capitalism <laughs> they don't produce anything they just extract money from all the people who use lasers um, and then he's like Wait, are you able to talk a bit about patent trolling because it's like we should get into it more in a future episode but essentially people just like patent various technologies and then as soon as anything appears that uses anything even incidentally related to this or that technology they just file lawsuits to extract rents from them right I mean yep. it produces nothing productive for the economy uh, it was uh, yeah the, the, well, the company was even called Patlex which what? stood for patent litigation oh my god <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, I will admit like having done a, a small bit, not as much as Andy, but a small bit of research on Ken Ligone, I do respect his just complete balls. <laughs> I, mean, I don't really like capitalism so much as I like Ken Langone. Yeah. <laughs> he just, I mean, this guy's always on the hustle. Like it's, it's funny cause the, he had this other guy, you right? You should call it, I love the court system. <laughs> <laughs> he, he talks about having a, um, a collaborator basically a ghostwriter and it's uh-huh. clear like the ghostwriter knew to do the hero's journey uh-huh. <laughs> all the way up to when he starts home depot but then it's clear he's no longer this rough and tumble kid so he's like all right so it we was gotta it do- was nice of his ghostwriter to uh, uh brush all the spaghetti sauce off the transcripts <laughs> that were submitted to him <laughs> canola oil this makes the pages stick together i just like that the story goes dark in chapter seven the morally bankrupt chapter <laughs> yeah it's like, I can't make this guy rough and tumble. Now he's just like this asshole billionaire who's just like yelling at everyone. So uh, we take a, a brief side trip to Ross Perot's 1992 presidential campaign. Cool. Where uh, Ken, sa- Ken says he almost changed the course of U.S. history. And then he says, take note of that word, almost. So there was a story in USA Today that speculated at the time that if Ross Perot won, our boy Kenny would have been the Secretary of the Treasury. Wow. And so uh, he he basically he would he would help Ross Pro by um, doing spin on all the uh, networks uh, he would on Larry King Live Crossfire all the twenty four hour news networks mm-hmm. and he would also smooth with reporters after the uh, after the debates and apparently he saw a Bush official go into uh, Ross's dressing room and 
didn't know what they were talking about. Apparently, Ross kept uh, talking about how this rumor that the um, the ambassador to Iraq um, supposedly gave Saddam Hussein a wink uh, <laughs> to imply that it was all cool to go into Kuwait. <laughs> um, and so apparently the Bush administration official was trying to set the record straight with Ross on that one. Oh. But by wondering what they could have been talking about, he got the idea that if uh, he goes holy shit i thought if we can think of a way for ross and bush to join up we win we could kill everybody in iraq (laughs) so so then he goes on his harebrained scheme because throughout all the book he keeps uh talking about how he's like and then i got this idea and i called johnny over in finance and johnny in finance said i love it let's go over to uh let's go over to jeff in uh in in analysis and marketing and then we worked the deal and we made 50 million dollars so at this point, he it's he keeps that tone, but it's him just calling senators without explaining how he has all these connections. So it's like I called up Arlen Specter and I said, "Hey, Arlen, what if we get if you got a connection in the White House, we get Ross to drop out. He endorses George Bush. We win this thing." And it's like Arlen Specter was crazy about the idea. So then Arlen Specter gets uh, he gets another guy involved. Who's the other guy? Oh, he gets Bob Dole involved. Oh. And Bob Dole loves Bob it. Dole. Exactly. Bob Dole just like to hear Bob Dole talk about Bob and, Dole. And uh, finally, he talks to the White House. I like, I like more my version where Arlen Specter dies of cancer so he doesn't <laughs> have to keep listening to Ken Ligone's stupid ideas. <laughs> By the way, I love uh, bringing this up, but right before Arlen Specter died, after he resigned from the Senate, mm-hmm. he uh, his retirement career was in stand-up comedy. Oh. And I'm not bullshitting you. There's a CNN documentary where it shows him doing stand-up at Caroline's, just bombing with his Bill Clinton <laughs> jokes. And what then, year would this be? Uh, this is right before he died. So like 2011 or something. He's um, doing Clinton jokes in 2011? Of course he's bombing. Yeah. And so they interview him in his office, this like Manhattan office. And he's sitting at his table and they're like, so do you want to like tell us one of your jokes like from your process? And so he reads off this joke. Uh, and no one laughs, and then you get to see one of the most powerful people, former most powerful people in America, go like, "Yes, you know, I still have to kind of work on that." <laughs> We're going to go over some of the material that you're planning to use on Monday night at Caroline's. Correct? These are possibilities. These are candidates. When I was uh, recuperating from uh, Hodgkins, the doctors told me to spend some time in a hot tub. So I was in this hot tub, luxuriating. Then comes Ted Kennedy, 283 pounds, in his finest, his birthday suit. <laughs> and like a walrus, he plops into the hot tub. And you know the old story about a rising tide lifts old boats? My head hit the ceiling. Newt Gingrich, I've known Newt a long time. In fact, I've known Newt so long, I, I, I knew him when he was skinny. Uh, I've known Newt so long, I've, I knew his first wife. <laughs> Strom Thurmond said in his deep South Carolinian accent, Nancy and I have sex almost every night. We almost have sex on Monday. We almost have sex on Tuesday. I don't know if this is fit for CNN. It's pretty embarrassing when you're a -a Make-A-Wish kid stand up and you still can't get a laugh. That's so funny. So uh, they try to, um, 
they try to get Perot to team up, but apparently the White House guy leaks to Goldman hmm. that um, there's a move to get Ross Perot there. And that and Goldman, that someone from Goldman Sachs asks Ross Perot about it, and Ross Perot decides that he can't trust the Bush administration, oh. so uh, he doesn't go with it, and that bombs the whole thing. And years later, apparently, uh, the uh, oh uh, Ken meets Baker, the guy who um, uh, was the Bush official who kind of blew the thing up. Uh, he says he met him at a Bohemian Grove gathering. To... Right. There's a video of Alex Jones confronting Baker outside of a Bohemian or like, no, he confronts him about the Bohemian Grove. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And Bohemian Grove, for those who don't know, is just it's this it's where rich people walk around in the woods and I guess just network on how to control America. Isn't yeah. it like West Coast based where Skull and Bones is East Coast based? Or am I No, no, no. That? Skull and Bones is a Yale thing. Mm. Um, but Bohemian Grove is uh, for like, I guess it's like former Skull and Bones types. But okay, it's it's gotcha. basically just like billionaires and former presidents and senators. Um, so then, then we get into kind of the meat of the book, uh, which is our boy Elliot Spitzer. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, uh, Ken Langone. Oh, excuse me. It was David Gergen is another Bush slash Clinton official who attends Bohemian Grove, and there is a video of Alex Jones confronting him. (laughs) Uh, What's great about that video is Alex Jones clearly full of cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Supplements. Cocaine supplements. Cocaine supplements. (laughs) I got more energy. I feel more crazed than when I was 20. Uh, It does not have to be approved by the FDA if it's a supplement. Um, Before we get to Spitzer, I do just want to do one poll quote. Uh, that Mr. Langone gave Lengone. Uh, on his uh, press tour to promote this book. He gave uh, Peggy Noonan of the Wall Street Journal uh, woke up briefly from her Percocet haze to interview this guy. <laughs> and uh, he gave a quote that I would just like to share with you guys. Uh, he says, in 2016, I saw Bernie Sanders and the kids around him. I thought, this is the Antichrist. We have the greatest <laughs> engine in the world. And uh, wow. just to put that in perspective, Bernie Sanders' proposals are basically less radical versions of what Franklin Delano Roosevelt proposed in 1944. Uh, The economy, of course, that Ken Ligone made his fortune around was the uh, New Deal coalition that has been slowly eroded in the uh, decades since. But again, it's like this social Democrat is the fucking antichrist (laughs) to him. Oh, yeah. By Uh, the way, so the book's called I Love Capitalism. It's all just like an autobiography except the very end. mm -hmm. And occasionally he'll like pepper in words about how much he uh, loves capitalism. But it's just it's mostly madmen, uh, followed by a bun- settling a bunch of grudges, uh, and so we get oh, wait, to this section of the sorry, book. Sorry, one other thing from that Peggy Noonan uh, Wall Street Journal. He says uh, the wealthy have an obligation to help others. He says, "quote Where would we be if people didn't share their wealth? I got thirty eight kids on Bucknell scholarships. They're all colors of the rainbow. Some are poor kids, rough around the edges. It's capitalism." <laughs> How many are in-betweens? <laughs> Paper bag test for his scholarships, too. But it is just like, again, this guy, according to Forbes, as of June 2018, $3.4 billion net worth. Only 38? His, uh, his, yeah, his giving back is funding 38 scholarships. This is a drop in the bucket of his bottom line. But he gave $100 million to uh, NYU Med School. Uh, and so they would charitably name the medical center after him. It wasn't his idea. They said to him, hey, if we put your name on it, more people will want to give. 
And uh, so, but now he gets a swell of pride every time he sees his name, even though he knows that pride is a mortal sin. Oh, he loves God, by the way. Oh, that's Big good. fan of God. He's a, he's a Catholic, uh, loves it's, God. It's always nice when uh, people love God without reading one word Jesus mm-hmm. wrote. Uh, oh, but he references he references the Bible at one point, and uh, that's where I got the idea to have Elliot Spitzer followed with private investigators. <laughs> that didn't happen. He's he's got his own story. Uh, oh, where's his Bible quote? Oh, and just like uh, another thing, uh, while we're on the subject, he's also a Romney bundler. He's been a bundler for a lot of uh, different Republican candidates. He mm-hmm. maxed out his personal donation to Donald Trump and voted for the guy, um, but he gave hundreds of thousands. Uh, according to Mother Jones, to uh, uh, Carl Rove's American Crossroads, uh, American Action Network, another dark money super PAC, and of course uh, he, he loves giving. Yeah, he he got a, he was a bundler, which is he got a lot of other millionaires and billionaires together to raise money for Mitt Romney in 2012. So as well as uh, Rudy Giuliani in 2008. <laughs> wah, wah. He just he 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 just he cares about the underdog. In uh, 2011, he was critiquing Obama for not wearing his suit jacket in the Oval Office, oh. and this is what he was quoted said, Ronald Reagan would never go into the Oval Office without his jacket on. That's how much he revered the presidency. This guy worked like hell to be president, okay? He's got it. Behave like a president. I'm pretty sure Ronald Reagan didn't even know he was president by the end of it. <laughs> he didn't know if he was wearing a jacket or not. Now, that doesn't sound like the Ken Langone in here who said that it doesn't matter what you wear as long as you do a good job. Oh, he asked, uh, he was going to invest in a place. He asked the lady who ran it, what's the clothing policy? And she said, well, uh, as long as the people wear clothes. And he was like, that's how I knew it was a good place to invest in. Mm. But uh, also, Barack Obama should put on a jacket. Uh, he says, there's a parable in the Bible about a farmer who needs workers. Mm. He hires a guy at 8 o'clock in the morning. The guy works until 6 o'clock p.m. You know the Bible where they reference... Uh. <laughs> Uh, American Standard Times and the farmer pays him for the whole day but at 5 o'clock in the afternoon he hires another guy who works one hour uh, I'm sure that was in the Bible one hour Did you and the know? farmer pays him for the whole day the first guy bitches the farmer says hey I didn't take anything away from you it's my money that's the essence of capitalism wait did it's he investing. say bitches yeah he says bitches uh, oh yeah when, he uses swears when quoting the Bible uh, he's paraphrasing the Bible but uh, did you guys know that if you're worth three point four billion dollars, you're allowed to tell your editor no? <laughs> <laughs> What's great here is that even when quoting the Bible, he's so plugged into the capitalist idea of like hourly wages that he has to translate something where it was probably like sun up to sun down into six p.m. until uh, or you know eight o'clock in the morning until six p.m. This other guy he works an hour like it has to be in terms of hourly wages because he can't conceive of a world without that. You know, oh, he loves capitalism. As, if you set aside all the stuff about Jesus said about like don't jack off and shit. Uh, if you set that aside, like the vast majority of his quotes are like, uh, you need to literally give every single dollar you own to charity in order to enter heaven. Oh, right. he he references that in his last chapter, and he struggles with it. Oh. He doesn't 13. know. Uh, it's the chapter called Network. I struggle with going up to like, thirty-nine li- Bucknell you scholarships. Can, Jesus says you literally cannot get into heaven <laughs> if you ha- have any wealth left yeah. when you die. Yeah, and he says, I mean, should I give more? I don't know, but. I have to think about it. <laughs> he also he also translates all like non-capitalistic master-servant common law relationships into those. Oh wow! Yeah, 
So like any story from the Bible about anyone performing any service or work I just love how turns that... into uh, employer-employee. Mm-hmm. But he like, gives so much of his money away. That Bible story really opens like a guy going to Home Depot to hire a day laborer. Like once a guy showed up to work a full day's work a wage, it's like, buddy, you know what we're talking about here. <laughs> Listen, he's always thinking uh, that there's got to be a greater meaning to his life. Mm-hmm. than all the money he's made. Mm-hmm. The Bible says there's a better chance of a camel getting through the eye of a needle than a rich man making it into heaven. Okay. The Bible says that if I want to be really rich, I'll give everything away. Warren Buffett's a little less strict than Scripture. He says that wealthy people should give away at least half of their wealth to philanthropic causes. I signed Warren's giving pledge years ago, but in my case, it was academic. I'd already given away more than half of my net worth. Okay. Should I follow the Bible? I'll be honest. I'm not giving everything away. Why? Because I love this life. Uh, I love having nice houses and good people to help me. Uh, I love getting on my airplane instead of having to take my shoes off to wait in line taking the commercial flight. If you will come, if you want to accuse me of living well, I plead guilty. You know, I struggle with religion, but I promise you, Jesus, I will go to church every Sunday if, the, if this guy burns in fire for eternity. <laughs> So uh, so let's dive into Spitzer. Mm-hmm. Um, so this all starts when he's part of the uh, New York Stock Exchange, which apparently is a not-for-profit company. It was a not-for-profit was company. A, it was a not-for-profit company when the trouble arose. Mm-hmm. And what happens is there's this guy there, and they have a rule. Dick Grasso. Dick Grasso. Was the uh, CEO of the New York Stock Exchange at the time, the nonprofit. Yes. And they wrote a rule that gave every employee retroactively a pension of 2.5% times the compensation for every year of service. So if you've been there for, say, 10 years, you get uh, 25% times your current compensation as your pension. Mm -hmm. So what happens is this guy, when he's finally going to retire, uh, uh, let's see, Ken claims, or he gets $140 million. And Ken claims that this is, that calculus just going into how he's paid. And he also now, um, likes to if, claim... If I could just uh, jump in here, there's a good Fortune magazine article on this, uh, a link on the Tumblr whenever I get around to updating that, but I'll link to it on the Tumblr. But um, uh, uh, so basically an interesting thing about the New York Stock Exchange at the time is the board of directors who, of course, set the compensation from the, for the CEO. Many of them come from, uh, this is according to Fortune, many directors came from the securities industry, which, of course, Grasso, as the CEO, was a regulator of. So you can see where the conflict kind of comes in, where these people who represent Wall Street firms that the New York Stock Exchange does regulate are having to set the compensation for the very man who regulates them. Um, so you can yeah, see why that in, might uh, be. Carl McCall, who had previously been comptroller of the state of New York mm-hmm. in the compensation committee. And so, okay, so uh, Langone claims that the New York Stock Exchange they're a not-for-profit company, mm-hmm. which is completely different than a non-profit company. Okay. Uh, <laughs> not according to New York state law, but all right. <laughs> it, it, with, with no shares or shareholders, all the revenue that the exchange earned went straight back into exchange expenses, mm. including Dick's pay, oh. Dick Grasso. Yes. But... And um, so, and just one other thing from the Fortune article. So basically, uh, uh, during his first four years as CEO, Grasso made about uh, $6 million a year, approximately. Like in 1998, he made $6 million. He made about $15 million for his four, first four years. But of course, these, you know, $6 million a year, this is pennies. This is, this is not enough for this guy. And, right. uh, and just... Um, Dick uh, worked so hard to 
to Y2K bug proof, the New York Stock <laughs> Exchange. He rang that bell after 9-11. Yeah, he could have. Nobody so could have done that. He could have brought it up and going the on 9-12. But you know what? The, 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 the city said, you know what? Wait until the next Monday. His original All plan right. was to keep it, out, keep it running through the attack. Oh, yeah? And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and That's so, how hardworking he is. Yeah. And so just one more quote from this Fortune article. Uh, to Langone, it was a matter of simple fairness. Grasso had single-handedly preserved the exchange, and the board needed to make him feel appreciated. Here's the quote. You don't wait to go home one night and find your wife in bed with the painter, he says. You need to show her how much you love her every day. And apparently six million a year is not enough to show your wife how much you love wow. her. Listen, the... This was right after Enron, and people were really mad at corporations. I wonder why. And so the papers couldn't stop talking about the big pay package that Ken had pushed for General Electric CEO Jack Welch. And when he was on the compensation committee, when he was at the compensation committee at GE, mm-hmm. and the rich contract he'd gotten for Bob Nardelli at Home Depot as CEO back in 2000. But as, as Ken says, what they never mentioned was the basic equation of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Welch and Nardelli had earned the money by creating value. Oh, yes. I pay people for performance. Now, what he's leaving out of this is that, of course, as we mentioned, the board of directors... Basic equation of capitalism. <laughs> the board of directors for the New York Stock Exchange were uh, many CEOs of companies that were regulated by the New York Stock Exchange. But you'll see that in a lot of things, like, uh, for example, Elliot Spitzer... Um, uh, 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 previously investigated the analyst scandal in which Wall Street analysts uh, for various firms were giving um, high ratings to companies that their uh, um, their firms were trying to launch IPOs for and do business with. And in one case, they actually indicted a guy over essentially um, he agreed to give AT&T a high, a buy rating in exchange for um, AT&T's CEO helping his company on a board wow. fight on another board. So basically what they never mentioned with these board fights is that uh, the compensation is determined by CEOs and board members who have uh, huge conflicts of interest and is really nothing to do with Sorry market forces. <laughs> It's nuts. Uh, yeah. It's it's a straight up, hey, scratch my dick, I'll suck your dick. Entirely. They pay for value, and these guys were contributing value. And also, uh, Spitzer had aspirations to be the first Jewish president, and that's why mm, he did it. That's, that's true. He, was, he, just wanted, he just wanted the media attention. Yeah, so... Um, he uh, wanted to be the Jewish king, the Messiah. He wanted to be the Jewish boy in the, in the, the yard who didn't get bullied. <laughs> <laughs> now, so basically, like in 2003, I believe, yes, 2003, uh, it's announced that Grasso is going to be walking away with a $140 million severance package. Um, and then there's media outcry. You know, the New York Post is screaming about this and whatever. And so uh, Elliot Spitzer launches, he sues... Um, uh, uh, the New York Stock Exchange for two reasons. One is that um, uh, New York State law says that, uh, right, so under New York State law, it bars uh, not-for-profits from paying anything more than what is, quote, reasonable and, quote, commensurate commensurate with services performed. So he sued them for that, and then he also sued... He Gra- added value. It was reasonable. And then he also sued Grasso and Langone for duping the board about the CEO's pay, because they kind of did it in like an underhanded way, where, again, this is kind of in the Fortune article, but uh, 
Um, the CEO of Goldman Sachs at the time, who later went on to become the Treasury Secretary, Hank Paulson, was against this. And so they waited until he went on a vacation after receiving personal insurances that they wouldn't go through with this pay package. And then they voted on it when he was out of the country. Wow. And so, you know, they, they sued. I mean, Ken would agree to disagree. <laughs> and uh, uh, so they sued him for these two things. And again, just more uh, Langone wisdom from the fortune. He says, quote, they got the wrong fucking guy. And he said this during a series of incendiary conversations with Fortune magazine. He says, quote, I'm nuts, I'm rich, and boy, do I love a fight. I'm going to make them shit in their pants. When I get through with these fucking captains of industry, they're going to wish they were in a Cuisinart at high speeds. You know, I went to a tough school in Queens. (laughs) They used to beat up the little Jewish boys. And he also says, quote, if Grasso gives back a fucking nickel, I'll never talk to him again. Because originally Spitzer just wanted uh, Grasso to give back the majority of his $140 million severance package. Oh, and he also says just a fun quote about uh, Hank Paulson. He says, Paulson is the guy that's going to have not only egg, but shit all over his face. (laughs) So, you know, I do respect him for threatening to shit all over Hank Paulson's face. (laughs) Whatever our other differences, I think we can both get behind that. Well, Ken Uh, didn't want to settle with Spitzer. It was a matter of pride, and uh, once someone asked him if he wanted to settle, and he felt offended because that meant they didn't know him. Because, as he says, anyone who really knew me knew that I'd sooner jump off the Brooklyn Bridge than settle with that weasel. Please. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I can certainly tell you my preference between those two options. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so uh, basically this kind of winds its way through the courts, and uh, uh, Spitzer runs for governor in 2006, so he's not as interested. But originally, the New York State... uh, It it causes uh, Langone, a lifelong Republican, Mm -hmm. uh, to throw his support between Tom Swoozy, a Democrat. He liked Tom, uh, but he'll admit his main motivation was to stick it to Spitzer. Mm, Nice of him. Um, But so in 2006, the New York State Supreme Court um, ordered Grasso to repay a significant amount of it. Uh, but then they appealed, and in 2008, the New York State Court of Appeals dismissed all claims against Grasso on the grounds that because New York Stock Exchange was at this point a subsidiary of Intercontinental Exchange and is now a private corporation, New York State law regulating nonprofits didn't have any um, uh, hold over it. But of course, this ignores. Not for profits. Not for profit. But of course, this ignores that at the time this compensation package was devised. It was a not for profit. But hey, whatever. Um, so eventually, he wins in court. And. Uh, and then he uh, has an interesting role in the downfall of one Elliot Spitzer. Now, for years there had been whispers, some talk louder than whispers, that uh, in his desire to get back at Spitzer, he hired a private detective to shadow him, and that it was his detective sleuthing that ultimately led to Spitzer's downfall. But the following is uh, Ken Lagone's story, and he's sticking to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, in March 2008, I came to attend another uh, dinner this one at the Tribeca Grill in honor of Medal of Honor recipients. Uh, Grasso was going to be I the host. I love that video game. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get... I wasn't told there would be a dinner. <laughs> I just played the game for fun. I didn't know that Ken Lagone would be honoring me. No, Ken Lagone logged on. <laughs> Freaking no scope. <laughs> he uh, got a call from a friend of his who said... Uh, a couple, or a, someone lowered his voice and said, uh, I got a call today from a friend of mine who told me a couple of months ago he was waiting in line at the Grand Central Post Office. 
And who was standing in front of him but the governor of the state of New York, Elliot Spitzer. And when Spitzer's turn came, he bought a $2,800 money order. So then they were like, well, what could this mean? Because what's the governor doing at a post office on his own getting a $2,800 money order? What's he need that for? Uh, and of course, uh, fucking prostitutes. Yes, of course, he announced while he was buying the order, uh, I am the governor of New York and this is for a <laughs> prostitute. Um, but yes, so uh, uh, as Andy is mentioning, this is kind of an infamous moment, um, and it's also documented in a great documentary on Netflix, Client 9, which is about Elliot Spitzer. So uh, CNBC interviews Ken Langone, uh, like right after the news about Spitzer comes out, Lord. because of course, you know, they were old adversaries, and um, you can't really find the clip online, so I'm just going to read the transcript. CNBC asks, would you say that you were surprised by this news? Langone says, not at all. I had no doubt about his lack of character and integrity. It would only be a matter of time. I didn't think he would do it this soon or the way he did it. But I know for sure he went himself to a post office and bought $2,800 worth of mail orders to send to the hooker. CNBC, how do you know that? Langone, I know it. I know somebody who is standing in back of him in the line. And of course, he claims that this was just a friend and not a private investigator that he hired to tail Elliot Spitzer. Because you know those like coincidences where you're just standing in line behind the governor of New York <laughs> while he's ordering uh, fucking $2,800 of postal checks for his <laughs> escorts. And you just happen to call up your friend. Um, and, and one other thing on this. Um, Roger Stone, of course, a, a, a famous uh, Republican strategist who's uh, possibly going to be indicted by Robert Mueller, but we'll see. For um, fucking too much. <laughs> Robert Mueller's like, uh, I didn't like uh, in that swinger ad with your wife where you excluded smokers. I thought that was very discriminatory, <laughs> and I'm going to use, I'm going to abuse my office to take you down over that. But so, just according to the Atlantic, um, the uh, 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 one of the people who contributed reporting uh, to the uh, movie Client Nine found evidence that Stone had bragged to a South Florida blogger that the wealthy Republicans called the Group were organized around a coordinating operative. Republican lobbyist Wayne Berman and financiers included former AIG chairman Hayden Greenberg, another person who Spitzer uh, filed lawsuits against, um, and Home Depot financier Ken Langone, all major league Spitzer haters. So Stone denied this to the Atlantic, but uh, essentially the Atlantic reports that Spitzer, uh, sorry, Stone told a group, uh, told a Republican blogger that uh, Langone, among others, had hired him to do dirty work on Elliot Spitzer, and he almost certainly hired a private investigator to follow Elliot Spitzer around. It was just a lucky coincidence. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the tragedy of all this for Ken Langone is that the basic tenet of his faith is forgiveness. By the way, guys. But he can't find it in his heart to forgive Elliot Spitzer. Listeners, if you're ever in the post office and you happen to be in line behind Andy Palmer and you see him ordering $2,800 worth of cashier's (laughs) checks, please let us know about this horrifying (laughs) coincidence. So um, at the end of all of this Spitzer stuff, he says, I have no problem admitting my mistakes. I'm loaded with them, but I never bought a pencil without an eraser on it. And God invented erasers on pencils for people like me. God invented them? Looks like he's never used a pen. That's how he ends his Home Depot This uh, is probably why he chapter. thinks the Bible has the word bitches in it a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's go into the Home Depot. He's got the word ass in it a lot. Uh, so he's got his whole... <laughs> he's got his whole uh, Home Depot thing where he just talks about how he loves Home Depot's employees, but 
you know, CEO after CEO kept uh, screwing the pooch mm. on these employees. And Pay, uh, paying them too much and yeah. <laughs> letting them sit down during their eight-hour shift where they walk 15 miles while carrying 60-pound uh, uh, bags of shit that uh, they'll get fired if they accept tips for. Home Depot pays uh, $2 over minimum wage with the possibility of bonuses. Oh, that's good. And they don't have to do that. So uh, what, uh, what's this about Home Depot and unions? Uh, well, so interesting story, and uh, I spent at least two hours yesterday trying to find this video. Um, but Home Depot has, uh, for a while now, forced employees to watch anti-union propaganda videos. Um, there was one in October 2010 that it, it was mandatory for employees to watch. It was a uh, 14-minute anti-union video. It leaked in 2011, but since then, uh, Home Depot has filed copyright claims to pull it from both YouTube, <laughs> Daily Motion, everywhere. You cannot find this video online. I tried. Uh, if you're a listener and you know where this video is, please send it to me because I would like to play some of it on a future episode. Um, but just an uh, uh, interesting thing about this anti-union video, uh, it uses uh, some of the same actors and similar points from a Walmart anti-union video. Oh, wow. And interestingly enough, many of these actors are, of course, union actors. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, 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 just a, a Daily Coast blogger, again, I'll link to this on the Tumblr, did actually uh, transcribe some fun parts from this anti-union video that was, of course, mandatory for Home Depot employees to watch. Um, so, and I'll just try to read some of this in the cheery, upbeat voice. You might hear an actor uh, read uh, a script to Home Depot employees while, of course, wearing the Home Depot union, uh, uniform and acting like they actually worked there. Um, quote, that's why we don't believe it would be in the best interest of our associates or our company to have outsiders interfering in our associate relationships or the way we manage our company. The video you're about to see is about outsiders, unions specifically. At some point, you might be approached by someone interested in bringing a union to Home Depot. And of course, uh, notice the way they're calling uh, unions outsiders when uh, of just for anyone not triple parentheses, <laughs> yes, <laughs> foreign elements. <laughs> there might be globalists. A global <laughs> the only, uh, the only, <laughs> the only group we can truly describe as international elements. <laughs> they wake up one day in Vienna and the next day in Paris. <laughs> they are unions. You may be confronted with. Russian elements <laughs> while at work. Um, and so uh, another quote from this, uh, you're not the only one trying to get your foot in the door at Home Depot. You may have heard stories in the news or read in the paper or seen on the internet. Labor unions are very interested in Home Depot and other large companies and have spent millions of dollars trying to grow their membership. And then they interview one uh, fake employee for this propaganda video, and the fake employee says, The thing I remember most about the unions, they took dues money out of my paycheck before I ever saw it. Just like taxes. Wow. <laughs> the other thing I remember about the union representative didn't know my name or anything about me. The thing I learned about unions is they need money from people like you and me. So the reason why big unions are pushing hard for associates like ours is simple. Just follow the money. And of course... <laughs> I really, you know, satire is just beyond dead when you have uh, big uh, corporate anti-union propaganda telling you to just follow the money. <laughs> if, if the union had the money for it and put out like a, a video warning you about the employer, they're like, you might see someone who can control your every move for eight hours a day and 
dictate whether or not you can feed yourself independently. <laughs> and um, you just, might want to keep an eye out for yeah. that. Well, okay. So just, just uh, one other thing. Uh, in doing research for this, I stumbled over to the Home Depot Reddit, and if you were wondering why Home Depot employees might uh, want a union, uh, one of the top posts as of yesterday is, quote, had my availability deleted last week without notice, now being scheduled over court-ordered child visitations, wow. and told them I just, ha- and they told me I just have to find someone else to cover my shifts from now on. <laughs> so basically, uh, Home Depot is uh, notoriously uh, bad to their employees, and uh, uh, we can read some of those stories as well in a minute. Well, well, okay, so Ken says that they hired this guy, Bob Nardelli, mm-hmm. and he was the CEO, but he was all about numbers. So eventually, uh, uh, Ken rallied up the board and got Bob fired, and they brought in this guy, Frank Blake, and he understood the people at Home Depot and made everything better after all this damage that that Bob did uh, for six years as the CEO of Home Depot because he didn't understand employees, but now now they treat them good. Oh, that's good to know. Because they're their most valuable asset. Um, And so Hamilton Nolan, uh, a reporter at Splinter uh, News, uh, in response to this book that uh, Andy read, he compiled uh, stories from various Home Depot employees about their experience there. Um, So just a a couple, like, fun quotes here. Uh, uh, My real plight with my job is the metrics, a.k.a. how many poor souls have been financially uh, ruined by that 21.97 APR credit card I signed them up for because corporate told me to. So basically, Home Depot associates are pressured to uh, sell uh, credit cards with 22, 23% interest rate to uh, customers. And of course, these associates are, according to Glassdoor, average sales asso- average cashiers making $10 an hour, average sales associates making $11 an hour. That's more and- than minimum wage, <laughs> Ken would like to remind you. Right. You know, for a job where, according to one associate, on the average day, I walk approximately 15 miles while I work. And, you know, just like Amazon warehouse employees, these people are walking 15 miles on but, concrete. But, but they do make more than is legally required. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Ken cares about that. Yeah. Uh, uh, according to another employee, I only earn two hours of sick time a month. Uh, if I use, uh, if I am sick, I have to find someone to cover for me, or it counts as a strike against me. Um, just lots of really fun stories. Oh, Home Depot policy is immediate termination if you get involved with any union activity. Again, according to a nineteen, uh, according to the Wagner Act passed under FDR, it is illegal to file fire people for trying to unionize. But in all these at will jobs, they will find an excuse to fire you. Um, and of course, Home Depot employees get no discounts. Uh, another uh, well, that's because they buy straight from the uh, suppliers instead of going through a middleman. So all their products are already at discounts. <laughs> that's how they're able to stay competitive in the market. Just like uh, lots of employee stories about like having to put, having to just take tons of painkillers after work, having to like. Uh, you know, uh, apply bandages and everything else because, again, they're walking... The field medic. Yeah. <laughs> they're walking 15 miles on concrete. They're lifting 40 to 60-pound bags all the goddamn time. Um, and, and just like another... One more uh, uh, fun little quote here from uh, one of the Splinter stories from an employee. Uh, I've worked for Home Depot for almost three years so far and to date have received two increases in pay, total of 75 cents an hour. My starting base pay, $9, with another increase of a dollar to keep pace with other retailers starting pay to ten seventy-five. They've recently raised starting salary, another dollar, to 11 for new hires. And that's the rate I'm at now, $11. That's the same rate after three freaking years as a new hire novice gets starting today. So uh, Home Depot values their employees. 
a year ago, this article came out about uh, Home Depot co-founder gets worked up about people supposedly using food stamps to buy marijuana. <laughs> is that Ken Lagone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it shows uh, how out of touch he is. He's literally like, yeah, you know, I don't mind the the fucking uh, food stamp being cut out because they can buy things like marijuana and cocaine with that and other legal goods. It's like, what? what? Well, let me tell you this. Uh, Phil Morelli, uh, he started at Home Depot 19 years ago as an hourly associate at a couple of bucks an hour, more than minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And he was a lot boy, helping people load their carts and pushing the carts back to the parking lot. Today, he's a district manager in charge of eight stores. He makes more than 250000 a year. And quote, but I'll tell you why I came to see you today, he said. He looked at me. I want you to know last spring I paid off my parents' mortgage. In December, I paid mine off. And yesterday afternoon, I got a call from my Merrill Lynch broker telling me that my account is now worth over a million dollars. So I'm a millionaire. Nobody really tells you the uh, good stories that the Sonder Commandos went through. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of like where it, I was thinking about that again. You know, maybe some people are offended by the comparison, but it's like essentially the way that uh, Nazi labor camps were able to operate was that they gave special privileges to um, some uh, inmates uh, to boss around and abuse the other inmates. And so you kind of see that in a lot of capitalist firms where uh, you get $14 an hour, but you have to crack the whip and uh, cut hours and fire people when it comes close to our uh, share reporting time. Counterpoint, uh, uh -huh. when capitalism works the way it should, it works for everybody. It's like the tide. All boats get lifted. Uh, and then parent, uh, uh, parenthetical, maybe. Uh, and if you don't have a boat, you drown. Mm -hmm. But Oh, and uh, uh, just a, a couple other splinter quotes, and then I'll be done with this. But uh, So one person says, uh, basically, every time it comes uh, near the end of each fiscal half, uh, they have to like drastically cut labor to juice the, pro the stock price. <laughs> and he just says, <laughs> I encourage you to go to a Home Depot in a big market towards the end of each fiscal half and notice the amount of coverage the store will have. Uh, that is employees like uh, you know he says like uh, during those times uh, if anyone calls out we weren't allowed to call in other associates to fill in the gaps you know so essentially and you just have to like reduce part-time hours etc cetera, etc cetera, give people the option to leave early so it is just kind of like again juicing the numbers for the stock price and uh, it is www. What the fuck? <laughs> um, but it's like, you know, and just recently Home Depot uh, uh, reported, um, well, the stock price fell on bad news, like a, a weak quarter. And uh, Ken Lungone, among others, blamed the weather. Um, but, you know, it, it is just interesting to me where I think a union would actually help this store in that they have horrific uh, employee turnover. And uh, multiple employees have said that there is absolutely no training. You're expected to learn everything on your own. These employees are abused, ground down for $11 an hour. And, of course, lots of them quit. So it's like, uh, you know, maybe a union would actually give you a dedicated workforce that uh, could build a sustainable stock price instead of this current slide that they're on. Yeah, and McCarthy mentioned Nazis a moment ago. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2014, he was quoted saying, I hope it's not working. Ken Lagone, the billionaire co-founder of Home Depot and major GOP donor set of populist... Oh, shit. I just got a fucking... Right, he was comparing like hatred against billionaires yeah, to, hit, to Hitler or something. Yeah, he was saying oh, nice. that... This it's is what he said. kind of a running theme here. 
uh, I'm so sorry, my f- set of populist political appeals because if you go back to 1933 with different <laughs> words, this is what Hitler was saying in Germany. You don't survive you as know, a society if you're encouraged and thrive on envy or jealousy. If you go back to 1933 where my grandfather was evicting people <laughs> during the Great Depression, you'll notice that there was a lot of uh, populist sentiment in the air for some reason. Well, okay, socialism would say that Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank and I shouldn't have been lavishly rewarded for the fact that people can go into a Home Depot and get better deals and make more affordable repairs to their homes because of what we did. Yes, of course, if they were uh, killed in the street tomorrow, Home Depot would cease to exist and you would no longer be able to walk into a Home Depot. These people are not at all parasites who just kind of extract capital and are just totally unnecessary to the process of an actual Home Depot employee's day-to-day life. And how really, how different are their stores from their biggest competitor to Lowe's. Mm-hmm. It's well, like a complete, almost the carbon copy store design. Yeah, they even have the same, same thing. They even they, have the same because of efficiency. They have to compete against each other. Right. Well, right. maybe socialism is right about us, but we know capitalism brings better lives than socialism does. I'll take you to any Except- socialistic country, to Russia, to Romania, to Hungary, and you can see for yourselves. You know those modern socialist countries, Russia, Romania, and Hungary? <laughs> I, I love when they leave out uh, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland. Uh, again, we- social democracies, but still, that's basically what Bernie Sanders advocates for. Well, he has a thing to say about <laughs> Bernie Sanders, but we'll quickly... Um, wait, wait. Uh, brush. Oh, okay. Go. One last story from Splinter. Uh, central AC in all Home Depot stores is controlled from the headquarters in Atlanta. What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I would just like to quote this full one. Uh, he says uh, uh, from Splinter News, it is true about the climate control. I always wondered why there was always an empty hot dog warmer turned on under the thermostat in my store. Well, it is so corporate in Atlanta who controls our air realizes it's hot out. It gets over 100 degrees in summer and the store manager still has to plug in the hot dog warmer. So someone 3000 miles away will turn on our AC. <laughs> uh, yep. Well, I love capitalism. Capitalism gets a bad rap these days. Madoff didn't help. The financial crisis didn't help. Oh, and he kind of likes to claim that, what he, else didn't help? that he smelled Madoff coming uh, just because Madoff tried to get some money from him and it was yeah. kind of sketchy. As depicted in the HBO movie Wizard of Lies. That's uh, right. Where Madoff was excellently played by Robert De Niro. Mm. Um, you know, these Italians, they look out for each other. Give De Niro a shout out. <laughs> so... <laughs> Is there a video of Ken Langone smashing his Robert De Niro uh, pictures in his home <laughs> after he said fuck Trump at the Tonys or whatever? <laughs> so uh, when Bernie Sanders campaigned for the presidency in 2016, I'm afraid he got a lot of college kids to believe that capitalism is bad and that America is headed or should be headed towards something that in my mind resembles socialism. Mm-hmm. Guaranteed income, free college tuition, single payer health care. Mm. I disagree, period, strongly, period. Guaranteed income. Where's the incentive to do more or do better if the money you get is detached from the work you do and the effort you put into it? I can imagine people, like, gradually cheering louder as he lists lists those things. (laughs) You pay for your health care. You pay for your college. You pay for your child care. So, so, hope. Hold hold this in your mind. Where's the incentive to do more or to do better if the money you get is detached from the work you do and the effort you put into it? Just just remember that. Uh, free tuition sounds great, but where's that money going to come from? The answer, uh, people like you, Ken. And then <laughs> uh, single payer health care. How are you going to feel about going to a hospital with a serious condition 
when you have no choice about where to go to, you know, like when you're in an ambulance unconscious. Right, right. And uh, if you could just play this clip, uh, uh, Steve, uh, it's uh, his kind of understanding of how the economy works. And I, I would just like to have uh, Steve react to it real quick. He doesn't worry about how do I stay relevant. So, in wait, my wait, market. let me actually just set this up. He's talking about essentially Paul Krugman, Keynesian economist, is talking about we have to deficit spend to uh, help a weak economy. And this is Ken Lingone's, uh answer to this on uh, Bloomberg. And again, this guy's a billionaire and just see his understanding of how the economy works. I'm in whatever I'm in, okay? I have no trouble, but understand one thing. You either take taxes from people who earn money and if you think that's not high enough you can go to wherever you want the one thing i know about the one percent is like me there's a limit what's the limit 100 percent of my income good idea 100 percent i'm done unless you say okay he's got no income now let's go after his assets better idea we may get there <laughs> but the only way the government meets its bills is the way you and you and i do we pay somebody oh money. Oh, my God. Oh, hell yeah. The Tax money payers. either comes from taxes or other activities like revenues and fees and stuff. Portable. Or a willing and compliant Fed saying, how many bonds you got? A billion? Turn the presses on. Give us a billion dollars worth of currency. Here it is. This is simple stuff. That's my problem with the Krugmans of the world is they're brilliant. Wait, wait. They just may be too brilliant. There's one other part of this. Okay, I don't take a thing away from his intellect. But this is simple stuff. Losing weight is not a very scientific endeavor. It's simple. <laughs> you consume less calories than you burn, and you lose weight. You consume more calories than you burn, you me. gain weight. <laughs> so That's it. This is a uh, man, again, $3.4 billion, uh, and he I thinks mean, the he... functioning of the modern economy can com be compared to uh, calories and weight gain. Yeah, I mean, well, for one thing, Krugman, what he's complaining about Krugman isn't actually the reality of Krugman's argument. Mm -hmm. He says, like, well, there actually are limits, and like he kind of agrees with Ken Langone. Wait, wait. So you're saying that Ken Langone doesn't understand opposing arguments to his own? <laughs> so I disagree with socialism. He's right. It actually is very simple. It's just not <laughs> his simple explanation. Right, right. I disagree with socialism, not as you might believe, because I'm a rich guy trying to hold on to my money. I disagree because socialism is based on the false notion that we should all be exactly equal in every single way. You know, just for old time's sake, we should let him read that as his final <laughs> statement before he is put under the guillotine. <laughs> I just, like, like, just like, like the so idea of like, like Karl Marx's entire work, everyone should be exactly equal. He's like, uh, he starts out with his list of things that are terrible. He's like, you want to tax people like me in the 1%, 100% of our income? Hell yes. <laughs> all right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it just grows from there. Yeah. And then he's like, uh, well, if you tap us out, then you're going to have to take our assets, too. <laughs> it's like, like woo, yeah. No, it, Vince it, McMahon <laughs> getting more excited dot gif. <laughs> yeah, e yeah, no, each, e after each question is one panel of, like, the galaxy brain. <laughs> uh, no, it later okay. says capitalism, capitalism is brutal. It's survival of the fittest. What's a successful business? More money coming in than going out. It's like, okay, so basically, it's survival of the fittest. He's 
blatantly advocating for social Darwinism. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, but he supports people of all colors, Andy, <laughs> with his Bucknell scholarships. Thirty-eight the of in them. between people. He supports thirty-eight people of all colors. Capitalism's brutal because there's no place for losers, but there shouldn't be. Okay. So um, yeah, that's the homeless. It's not that bad that people are homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, so. In conclusion, capitalism That's... is a land of contrasts. One last thing I want to mention uh, before we wrap up here is uh, uh, the devout Catholic, uh, Ken Langoni, mm-hmm. uh, picked a fight with the Pope <laughs> recently. <laughs> uh, basically, the Pope at one point said, like, hey, rich people, stop money laundering through the Vatican, through the mob. <laughs> and, uh, you know, which is kind of a good thing for the Pope to say, hey, stop being shitty, let's help the world. <laughs> And Ken Langone was like, uh, fuck that noise. Uh, what if I stop donating to the church, Pope? And Ken Langone was like, uh, Jesus never said anything about money changing or money laundering. <laughs> right before the Bible thing, he uh, says, uh, and that's capitalism. Should the should these people who've made a bunch of money for Home Depot uh, with their good ideas uh, not have gotten bonuses because the other kids in the stores didn't come up with a brilliant idea? Should Dick Grasso not have been paid $140 million for adding tremendous value to the New York Stock Exchange? And then there's a parable in the Bible. <laughs> Goes straight from his his uh, getting sued by Spitzer to like, in the Bible thing. Also, he uh, right before the end of this, he gives this there, anecdote. A par- He's like, there's a parable in the Bible. Uh, the U.S. economy is a lot like a fat person trying to lose <laughs> weight. You just have to like less calories calories in calories out it's easy he gives this anecdote about el salvador where um people are uh moses getting... came down from the mountain i have 10 food pyramids <laughs> 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 he says these people from el salvador were making 4000 a year uh-huh. uh so he decided killing nuns for ronald reagan <laughs> he decided to be generous and because incru- he realized they couldn't live Mm-hmm. On four thousand a year, mm-hmm. so he decided, let's pay them five thousand two hundred a year, and then he basically brags about how delighted they were when they heard the news and how angry other corporations were that he was raising wages in El Salvador to five thousand two hundred dollars a year. Mm. So, in conclusion, it's not about the money. Yeah, Ken Langone, he loves his work. Mm-hmm. He says. And he closes the book with this. I still love my work today. All of it. At 82, I'm still excited to get out of bed in the morning, still charged up about what the next deal might bring. And though the money my enthusiasms have brought me has enabled me to live well and help others, I can honestly say that if it came down to it, I would pay to go to work every day. How many people can say that? And, uh, Certainly not your thousands of Home Depot employees. Yeah, I would say nobody who has to work for a living. But it's also, like, earlier he's like, I also like what are people going to do if they have no money incentive? And then here he's saying, like, yeah, right. <laughs> I'd pay to do my job. <laughs> he's advocating more than socialism with that quote. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also like uh, when he said enthusiasms, he uh, beat somebody to death with a baseball bat at his board <laughs> meeting. Um, oh, and uh, one other thing before I forget here. He's... Uh, uh, famously, you know, Trump supporter, as we mentioned, but uh, he does have kind words to say about our current governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. He uh, went on Fox News and said that uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, was his uh, favorite um, governor. And I would just like uh, 
so he went on Fox News at one point, I believe in uh, 2011, and praised Andrew Cuomo as uh, this smart, like one of the smartest governors of his lifetime. And uh, if you're wondering why he might have done that, if you go over to Subsidy... Us Italians have to stay together. <laughs> Pasta you- sauce gabagool. <laughs> If you go over to subsidytracker.goodjobsfirst.org and you look at Home Depot, you'll you'll be surprised to find that the number one state to give uh, subsidies to Home Depot is New York State, which has given them more than $49 million going back to 2001. And again, this is a company that pays its employees garbage wages and abuses them. The second largest state subsidy is Illinois with $26 million. So, you know... Uh, Maybe the reason he loves Andrew Cuomo so much has uh, something to do with the almost $50 million that New York State taxpayers have given directly Pizza to sauce talking with your hands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Everyone, everyone should gesture with their hands when they talk three times more than they usually do. <laughs> Except the fucking Pope. <laughs> that fucking socialist commie bastard. <laughs> It's unfortunate he didn't confess to having a Gumar in the book, huh? <laughs> no, because he was horrified that Elliot Spitzer had done such a horrible thing to his family by sleeping around. A guy in finance who clearly never sees anyone else who sleeps around on their wife. How dare Only he? Elliot Spitzer. How dare. So, Palmer, what do you, what's your review of the book? It was one out of five stars. Yeah. You know, yeah, you should make an Amazon review. You did read it. You are a verified purchaser. And do you like, love, or loathe capitalism? I now love capitalism. <gasps> I gave it. I give it five out of five stars. Wow. Because I think that writing a bullshit book with a ghostwriter is a great way to make money, and I respect that. One other fun thing from the Splinter thing: uh, uh, Amazon has, uh, or sorry, Home Depot has Voice of the Associate scores, which are basically internal surveys of the associates and managers receive a lot of pressure to juice these scores to, to make the associates look like they're happy. And they say, uh, uh, anything less than four is bad, which is like, I believe out of 10, like neutral is bad. So people are afraid to lose their jobs if the surveys don't come. So there's a lot of pressure on the associates to be like, yeah, you love it here. So (laughs) just remember Andy, when you're reviewing this book for Amazon, anything less than four is bad. And with that, I love capitalism. Do you want to do your uh, list of people you wanted to endorse? Oh, yeah. If you're listening to this before uh, Tuesday, uh, June 26th, New York has a primary coming up. Um, Zephyr Teachout for AG, Cynthia Nixon for governor. Um, I think Dylan Radigan for Congress, New York 21. Alexandria is in... Ocasio-Cortez, she's in the 14th district running for Congress. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Uh, there's someone... Everyone that's... These in- Nuts is a very prominent uh, politician I'd like to support. Really, though, just write in these Nuts for all categories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see Wiener, also a really big... If you, uh, if you hate billionaires, give this list a chance. <laughs> really, what you should do is stand in line in the polls and tell people about our podcast. You don't even have to vote. If you want to make a change... Just <laughs> vote, vote grub stickers. <laughs> write it in. Uh, God almighty. And with that, this has been Grubstakers. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we appreciate all of your support. Uh, with that, my name is Yogi Polywell. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Check out the book, I Love Capitalism. Andy Palmer gives it five out of five stars, and he recommends you read it, too. It's, it's a book offer <laughs> you can't refuse. <laughs> Challenge my cable bill for my apartment. Not a lot of money, but I said, you know, how do they get to that number? It was a couple of hundred bucks. It's not that I'm cheap. It's just that I want to make sure I don't squander money.
I won't spend money frivolously. I don't think there's anything inconsistent with having been successful and also being frugal. I love to buy my wife nice things. I love to do things with my family. I love to travel. I like to go to nice restaurants. I love the theater. My palate is pretty simple. I like meatball loaf. I like meatballs and pasta and a bagel with olive cream cheese on it. I like candy, cheap candy, juicy fruits, good and plenty, nibs. I'm not a Starbucks guy. I'll go to a greasy spoon and get a cup of coffee. It tastes good. Going out and getting the pizza and seeing a good movie. No, it's none of my business. None of my business. What they spend with their money is their business. And who the hell am I to decide if you waste your money?